You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 23rd of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Sweden's long wait for NATO membership appears to be nearing an end. China defends its human rights record at the UN. And is there a reason why politics shouldn't be a family affair? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Aliona Livko and Sir Mark Lowcock will discuss the day's big stories and we will read the runes scattered by this year's Oscars nominations announced earlier. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Aliona Hlivko, former regional Ukrainian MP and the managing director of the Henry Jackson Society, a foreign policy think tank that advocates for liberal democracy, the rule of law, the market economy and all the other good stuff. And by Sir Mark Lowcock, fellow of the Centre for Global Development and former head of humanitarian affairs at the UN. Hello to you both. Good evening, Andrew. Hello. Um, Aliona, I thought we would be asking you about what you gleaned from the recent World Economic Forum at Davos, except Mm. you ended up not going. I ended up not going, unfortunately, because bronchitis got to me first. Um, As we all know, probably, that the big Ukrainian delegation was there. Mm -hmm. It descended upon Davos. It was very interesting to hear what 83 other partnering states think about peace formula. Unfortunately, there was not big progress made on that front. Uh, But nonetheless, it's interesting also to see and hear feedback from the Ukrainian colleagues and current members of parliament saying that the world has moved on so much. Everyone's talking about global issues and the issues of the future, the AI, uh, mental health, uh, male mental health in big corporate organizations. And yet Ukraine still needs to fight this Middle Ages war. Uh, just to follow that up, Aliona, it is uh, that is a partial answer to what I was going to ask, which is, as someone myself who's met a lot of Ukrainians at various security and diplomatic conferences over the last couple of years, do you notice that you know, attention is shifting dramatically away from Ukraine? Is it, is it getting harder and harder to for Ukraine to command centre stage? Um, I think, as I've said, the word moves on to other pertinent issues that keep arising on the horizon that need to be addressed. So inevitably falls through the cracks. Another war starting in Mm. the Middle East doesn't help. All sorts of trade crises and, and issues with navigation, especially in the maritime space that we all are aware of, don't help. The looming potential war with China or potentially even third world war, unfortunately, will keep bringing attention back to Ukraine. In that I'm certain because security matters never go away. And whether you like it or not, the war in the middle of Europe will bring your attention back. Uh, Mark, uh, you have in common with Aliona the fact that you were not at Davos this year, uh, having been on many previous occasions. But that was that was a choice, not illness. Yes, I, uh, Aliona talked just then about focus on mental health. And to improve mine, I <laughs> must say I escaped off to Seville. And if anyone needs somewhere to escape to, just briefly, from this dank, dark, cold, wet, grey London January, Seville gets my vote. The orange trees... You, you, you can ram- tell that you were a diplomat who went out to represent the United Kingdom in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, Seville, the orange trees now, absolutely full of gorgeous ripe fruit all over the city. It's a tonic. 
Uh, Mark Lowcock there, apparently now the ambassador for Seville. Um, but, but we will start uh, with what may be the beginning of the end of Sweden's untowardly lengthy journey to NATO membership. Sweden applied to join alongside its neighbour Finland in 2022, abandoning centuries of obdurate neutrality in response to Russia's assault upon Ukraine. But while Finland was waved in reasonably swiftly, Sweden's progress has been thwarted by Turkey and Hungary. The leaderships of both those countries taking the opportunity to score political points and get themselves on television. This week, however, Turkey's parliament is at last gearing up to vote, presumably yes, on the matter, and Sweden's prime minister has been invited to visit Hungary. It does remain to be seen, Aljona, whether he's actually going to go, but do you perceive here at last an end to this nonsense? Hopefully, as we've seen with Prime Minister Orban, uh, they do try to implement their agenda of coercion within Europe. It's like the enemy, not at the gates, but within the community. Um, He does try to negotiate out of this opportunity as much as he can. Um, I'm not sure how Sweden will take this. Of course, diplomatic effort and communication is always welcomed uh, when it comes to this. Whether they will succumb to his personal requests, uh, I think we're yet to see. But I do think also that the main word here will be after the key allies like the United States. And I think they've done their bit to to facilitate this decision. Uh, We do have some idea of how Sweden is going to take this. Sweden's foreign minister, Tobias Billström, has said that there's nothing to negotiate. Uh, So it's not entirely clear whether Prime Minister Ulf Christensen will be going to Budapest. But the Swedes do sound... uh, fairly uh, confident. Um, Mark, thinking back to your diplomatic experience, do the EU and NATO in particular in this case deal with Turkey and Hungary in notably different ways? And I've wondered about this a few times because obviously within the NATO context, Turkey whether you like it or agree with it or not, has to be taken extremely seriously. It is NATO's second largest military. It is the bulwark against the Middle East. It is the custodian of the Black Sea. It matters massively. Whereas Hungary has a population about the size of London and a smaller air force than Singapore. Yes, I think that's right, Andrew. Of course, Hungary is an EU member state. Mm. And I think what we've seen from Prime Minister Orban is at the performative end of a power move in these um, these words today. I mean, what he's tr- clearly trying to do is get some leverage over the EU on what he wants on the EU budget. Um, he'd like the Swedes to talk less about their views on the fragile, dodgy state of Hungary's uh, democracy. If I were Prime Minister uh, Ulf Christensen uh, uh, in Sweden, what I would be suggesting to Prime Minister Orban is why don't we get together in the margins of the Munich Security Conference in three mm. weeks' time, where the whole focus on everything actually will mostly be on Ukraine. And that, I think, would set a, uh, a, a context for the discussion that might, might put the Swedes on the front foot. Um, Aliona, the delay to Sweden's accession, sorry, if you think about this from Ukraine's perspective, has it done any actual damage? I mean, Sweden have still been very, very supportive. I think if if anything, it reiterates the point to Sweden and Finland, the new members, that the threat is real. 
It comes not just directly from Russia, it comes from Russian agents within various Western alliances, like Hungary in this case, for some reason. And going back to the difference between Hungary and Turkey, for example, Turkey as ever trying to balance their position carefully. They're being much wiser about this. And I think we even saw that in in two uh, leaders meeting of Hungary and Turkey and exchanging gifts. You could see the difference straight away, whereas Orban giving a stallion statue to, <laughs> to Erdogan tried to reinforce their both like strongman position, whereas Erdogan just brought a model of electric cars, something that Turkey wants to sell. So there's a difference in that approach. I think Sweden inevitably remains a very strong ally of Ukraine and a biggest donor. They comprehend Russian threat very clearly. Um, I think their um, NATO membership is just a matter of time. Um, and it only reinforces the fact that allies need to come stronger together and need to, to get a grip of all the wobbling members. Well, on that thought, Mark, how reliable an ally can NATO, actually indeed not even an ally, how reliable a member can NATO actually consider Turkey, especially in the context of Ukraine's war with Russia? Because uh, Vladimir Putin is reportedly visiting Turkey next month. Uh, by some reports, Ebrahim uh, Raisi, the president of Iran, uh, is due in Turkey tomorrow. Now, there's obviously nothing necessarily wrong with somebody of the stature of the president of Turkey trying to have a dialogue with the presidents of Russia and Iran. But do we need to start wondering which side Turkey is on, other than Turkey's, obviously? It was ever thus, Andrew, wasn't it? <laughs> if you go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1961, part of the backdrop to that was where American missiles were going mm. to be uh, parked. And Turkey, I think, has been very clever over the decades in straddling um, you know, across both in both directions. Fundamentally, they want to extract what they can from both sides. I don't think there are many countries, actually, which Vladimir Putin's been to more often over the last 10 or 15 years than Turkey. But equally, the Turks have been very careful to navigate their relations with the US and the EU and others as well. And I think, in fairness to them, they do it with a degree of shrewdness and savvy, and they're always alive to where their national interest lies. Um, Aliona, just finally on this, and coming back to Sweden is it possible or would it make any difference, Sweden actually joining NATO, to the possibility of, and I know it is something that has been talked about and something Ukraine wants for obvious reasons, uh, Ukraine getting its hand on Sweden's Gripen fighters, which are an extremely uh, robust and versatile aircraft, pretty much ideally suited uh, for your, to Ukraine's needs right now? Mm. I think there has been a discussion about Sweden potentially donating some Gripens to Ukraine. The benefits, as you rightly mentioned, they're very shrewd, very resilient uh, in this Ukrainian war. They're much cheaper to spare, as, sad, mm. as that sounds. So they would carry less damage on the battlefield in terms of uh, financial spending. Um, Ukrainians will have to train on Gripens, though, again. So it creates another difficulty in terms of interoperability. If we're training, if we're getting trained on F-16s, getting trained on Gripens would be another logistical, not nightmare, but complication.
Well, to the UN now, uh, Mark's former place of work, where it is China's turn to undergo the inquisition known as the Universal Periodic Review, a twice a decade going over, submitted to by all UN members, in which a given state is asked to answer for its human rights record. Where China is concerned, there is obviously no shortage of material, not least the incarceration of perhaps more than one million Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang Gulag, which a report last year by the UN UN's own human rights office said might amount to crimes against humanity. China, as is traditional, denies everything. Um, Mark, first of all, and drawing on your experience as a UN insider, to listeners to whom the universal periodic review is coming as something of a sudden concept, what actually is it? How does it work? And is it that big a deal? Well, it's something, as you said, that every member state in the UN subjects itself to, and and everyone does it so they can do it to everyone else. (laughs) The process is um, designed to allow everybody to be done over a fixed period. And so there's a limited amount of time anybody is in the hot seat for. In the case of China, 160 countries signed up to have their say. That meant they had a princely 45 seconds each. Um, And China then had 70 minutes to respond. Now, most countries um, actually in that list were trying to manage their bilateral relations with China in that process rather than be the uh, spokesman in the room for Amnesty International. Some countries, though, went for it somewhat. And the US in particular used very strong language, language stronger than UN bodies would use about ongoing genocide in Xinjiang, referring obviously to the Uyghurs, which you touched on as well. So the process is one that everybody uh, accepts. You try to influence exactly how it's conducted in your turn by getting elected to the uh, mm. Council of the UN uh, Human Rights um, body. Uh, China is on the council at the moment. Russia actually tried to get elected to the council last year and failed. I should say also that the UK is not on the council at the moment. But there's not that much you you can do to navigate your way around around the process because everybody is subject to it in the same way. So am I right in assuming, just to follow that up, that if the country in question is, <clears throat> I don't know, Andorra or Liechtenstein, that there's fewer people queuing up to have a pop? But surely then the good news is if you do have a really deeply felt grudge against Andorra or Liechtenstein, you've got like an hour and a bit to tee off at them. I think the truth is uh, the day that Liechtenstein <laughs> is up for it is a day for a good long lunch for most of the delegates <laughs> of the UN. I think that the countries for which this is taken more seriously is, as a practical matter, the one where the ones where there is a g- general concern about human rights. So, for example, the previous High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, my <coughs> colleague doing that job at the time I was at the UN, one of the uh, you know former Prime Minister two times over of Chile, very highly regarded international politician states. When she went actually to China in 2022 um, and the office has tried to pursue with a degree of professionalism and integrity the concerns that have been raised, whereas with lots of other member states, that issue itself doesn't arise in the same degree. Um, I know it's his job, Aliona, uh, but nevertheless, um, China's ambassador to the UN, Chen Shu, uh, did we admire the straight face he kept when he declared that the Chinese people engage in democratic elections uh, and enjoy protection of their religious beliefs? 
Mm, isn't that a wonderful statement? Um, <laughs> maybe sometime in the future, of course. Uh, as you rightly noted, what else could he have said? Um, what I found extremely interesting about this meeting, it shows the the multilateralism of today's international world order, if we would like to put it that mm. way. Um, as you rightly said, um, so many countries signed up, some of them... As, as Mark just mentioned, managing bilateral relations with, with China. Russia was extremely forgiving. South Africa mentioned something completely insignificant in terms of China. We are seeing countries, for example, from BRICS, uh, really going at China's defense because they clearly see uh, China as a leader. And it just shows that the global south is galvanizing its support behind it, whereas other countries like the United States is a stronger voice uh, against abuse of human rights in China. There were obviously a lot of NGOs that backed that statement as well, especially about the genocide in Xinjiang, about Hong Kong and national security law and the political prisoners there. So we are seeing really this split going across the board. And Every single platform now becomes a combat area of who's going to win and who's going to galvanize stronger support amongst Andorras and Liechtensteins of this world. <laughs> um, it is something that does intrigue me, Mark. And again, I'd be interested in your view on it as a UN insider. And it's just going back to the ambassador's remarks about the the democracy and freedom of worship that the Chinese people enjoy. Um, why is it that countries always feel obliged to pretend that that's the case, even when everybody knows it isn't? You never hear a repressive dictatorship just standing up and going, yeah, we're a repressive dictatorship, what are you going to do? Well, you'll recall that the Charter of the United Nations speaks up for all those rights and, um, you know, the opportunities everybody on the planet should uh, have. And so it's very difficult if you don't really believe in them to be a UN member and say publicly that you don't believe in them. And actually, that's one of the powers of democracy, that everybody has to pretend they're up for it because <laughs> the opprobrium you get if you don't do that is a worse problem to deal with. Uh, and just a, a final thought, um, Aliona, and I suspect this is one of those ones where to ask the question is to answer it. Will any of this, any amount of the criticism that China heard in 45-second bursts make the least bit of difference to how China conducts itself? I think it's the checks and balances that matter. It's the willingness to comply, even if in complete fakeness and lies, as bluntly as it sounds, to the UN Charter, to those basic human rights principles, and they're still willing to make an effort to make it seem as if they're trying, then yes, the world is still moving in, in the right way. Well, let's look at another collective global enterprise, because yesterday the United States and the United Kingdom conducted fresh airstrikes against targets associated with the Houthi militia in Yemen, part of an ongoing campaign to dissuade the Houthis from taking potshots at passing shipping. As is often the case with joint US-UK operations, both countries have been keen to depict themselves as merely the tip of a lengthy spear. Official communiques have solemnly noted the support of allies in including Australia, Bahrain, Canada and the Netherlands. It now appears that New Zealand is keen to lend a hand. New Prime Minister Christopher Luxon has announced the deployment of six count them, military personnel. They will, it says here, assist with precision targeting. Um, Aliona, all jokes aside, uh, is it worth noting that this is six more people than most European or indeed other countries with an interest in this situation have provided? 
It's a very interesting move by New Zealand trying to join this alliance of states who, A, are clearly trying to make an effort um, to showcase their military and naval capabilities. We're seeing the United States obviously being the leader in that. Mm. UK is a long proclaimed and somewhat waning but still aspiring to be the sea power of this world, the Netherlands, of course, historically. So it's interesting that New Zealand is joining that, especially when we look at the deal like AUKUS, the um, military mm-hmm. alliance between the US, UK and Australia, focusing on submarines and providing security um, in the area of Indo-Pacific. If we look at Quad, US, Japan, India also forming uh, those alliances. New Zealand wants to be part of this world and of this stance, which is very interesting because before, for example, they almost opposed Australia's harsh stance on China and now they're trying to join that alliance. So it showcases a lot of instability as well in Indo-Pacific and the willingness to, again, in the multilateral world to align with the partners that they see future behind. Um, we were talking a bit earlier, Mark, about the the theatre that dictatorships put on in trying to appear like democracies. There's a different kind of theatre at work here, isn't there? When the US and UK launch joint military operations, they always want to say, we are merely leading an alliance. D- isn't, does anybody really buy it? Does, it? does it make any difference if you can say, look, we have a group of half a dozen to a dozen nations who vaguely said, yeah, fine, we're good with this? Andrew, I'm shocked, shocked <laughs> that you as an Australian don't recognise this as the natural exercise of New Zealand's global military might. Well, the thing is, I, I have just been in Australia where there was a great deal of chatter in the media about the seriousness with which Australia's views um, about the airstrikes on the Houthis are taken overseas, whereas I, for one, am unconvinced that anybody is spending a lot of time thinking about what Australia thinks. Well, uh, let me just wait one, a couple of substantive points. Firstly, New Zealand, of course, is a member of the Five Eyes intelligence Indeed sharing so. community, US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. So it's not surprising that its allies want to draw it in. Secondly, actually, there are quite a lot of countries who are very unhappy about what the Houthis are doing. The Houthis have tried to play on the um, their sympathy on which there's a global backing, actually, mm-hmm. for what's happening in Gaza. Um, but even countries like China have piped up and said, actually, we don't like the attacks on this, this shipping. And the, the point is that there's not that many countries who are not just willing, but also able to do something about it. The question for me, actually, is it, are these um, strikes going to work? What will the reputational effect of the world seeing them be on the US, UK when it comes to uh, double standards vis-a-vis Gaza? And what are the consequences for the people of Yemen? The Americans are about to proscribe the Houthis as mm-hmm. a terrorist organisation. Well, re-proscribe them, I think. It was done for two weeks at the end of um, <laughs> Trump's administration and Blinken then quickly reversed it. But I was at the heart of the discussions in the UN on that reversal because Yemen is a country which imports all its own food and all of the um, shippers, insurers, bankers who have to be involved in those transactions were saying, if uh, the Houthis are prescribed, we're out of here. Um, And that could have had catastrophic implications for ability to get enough food into the country. So 
um, I think there are questions about this, and it, 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 what, it's happening because of a high degree of frustration over what the Houthis are doing to ships. Um, returning to New Zealand, Aliona, I was impressed, I think, uh, with the statement of New Zealand's Foreign Minister Winston Peters, who is a, a rambunctious character with a, a long career of to put it charitably, saying very much what's on his mind in fairly unmistakable terms. But he addressed this idea that there is a linkage between, um, or at least a double standard in operation between Yemen and Gaza. He said, any suggestion our ongoing support for maritime security in the Middle East is connected to recent developments in Israel and the Gaza Strip is wrong. Um, Do we need to hear more of that kind of clarity of countries which are attempting to restore the security of shipping, saying this is not about Gaza, this is about this? I guess uh, these are the issues that require that nuanced approach. And it's very interesting that politicians, even as rambunctious, as you say, as (laughs) as that, um, that they they take the time to make sure that their ideological position is clear on one hand, but then the trade is being brought outside of that equation and they want to secure that. I think it's one sane way to approach today's extremely fragile state of the world. So I would back that. Uh, And just finally, going back to the the airstrikes on the Houthis themselves, Mark, the danger, of course, is that they don't work, uh, at which point it's not really credible, I don't think, for major powers such as the UK and the US to say, well, we had a bit of a crack at them. They don't seem to have got the message. Uh, What are you going to do? If this doesn't work, uh, how danger, or how great a danger, rather, is there of a sort of inevitable escalation? It is worth noting, in defence of the US and the UK, that they were successful with this kind of military action in getting rid of al-Qaeda in Yemen uh, some years ago. Um, I have to say, I was surprised to hear the first set of targets that were hit, which didn't look to me anything like the places you'd go after if you were worried about the Houthis' ability to attack ships in the Red Sea. So I think they will actually have quite a problem if they're unable to bring these um, these attacks under control it, for exactly the reason you've given just there. I'm not exactly sure where they go next. And because the consequences of, of the associated measures, like prescribing the Houthis, are potentially quite serious, they need to be careful not to back themselves into a cul-de-sac. Well, let's move along to something else entirely, and it's often held that democracy is sort of an opposite to monarchy. But politics has the same tendency as any other field of endeavour to become a family business. Indeed, in the very recent history of the United States, had Hillary Clinton beaten Barack Obama to the Democratic nomination for president in 2008 and served two terms, the presidency of Earth's mightiest republic would have been traded between two families for nearly three decades. Now, boffins in Belgium have done some research and concluded that at least one in ten of their country's MPs has a parent who also held elected office, including Prime Minister Alexander de Croo, whose father was Belgium's longest-serving Member of Parliament. Um, Aliona, you have been uh, an MP yourself. Is, is, is it the family trade? Is there a history of political engagement in your family? Good old nepotism. Um, (laughs) There is no political history in my family, at least not immediate one. My great-great-grandfather used to be a mayor of the little town where our family started its roots, I suppose, in the region. That's Um, a a bit tenuous. 
Well, see, I'm trying to make that connection still. I'm, I'm holding myself responsible to some political DNA within me. Um, but I've seen various examples of that in Ukrainian politics. I have seen very successful tandems mm. of parents and their children who absorb that through their childhood, through their education, maybe even DNA, some conversations, and they were quite skilled at, at what they're doing. And I still know some members of parliament who are sons and daughters of diplomats, and they're extremely skilled and, and doing a great job right now on the international arena. Some others were perhaps not that great and were probably forced into something that their parents thought was a well-laid-out ground for their uh, young offsprings to have a great career. So, you know, I think it really depends on an individual. But pros and cons, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, Mark? Well, I should speak up for Alexander de Croo, actually, who you <clears throat> mentioned, who I know a bit, who I worked with quite closely when I was at the UN. Oh, I found a very smart guy. The other thing I would say to um, Aliona's comment just now is the Nepo baby thing is not new. <laughs> Simon Seabag Montefiore and that fantastic book he published last year, A World of Family History, pointed out it's been going on for 10,000 years. Oh, of course. And it's not unique to the political world well, either. This, this, this is what I was going to ask. Is this any more or less inevitable than the children of, I don't know, pick a profession, shoemakers, carpenters, candlestick makers, etc., following in the family footsteps? If it's, if it's just sort of there, if it's in in the household, it's going to occur to the kids. I think that's right. I mean, I come from a very long line of many generations of coal miners, which isn't, <laughs> isn't a profession that everyone wanted to get into. But I must say that, um, you know, I'm a postgraduate trained economist. My wife is too. And lo and behold, we've produced a daughter who's also a postgraduate trained <laughs> economist. And doctors do that too. And it's not just Belgium where this happens. I worked for two very senior ministers in the British government, both of whom had MPs as their parents too. The profession, I think, which is the loveliest and the worst of all in this respect, is the, <laughs> is the acting profession. They're all at it. Um, but, uh, yeah, but the acting profession's just the worst in pretty much every respect you could possibly think of. Um, and, you know, the thing is as well, like, there's not really anything that can be done about this, is there? It would seem somewhat absurd and unfair to pass any kind of law saying that if your parent ever held elected office, you are therefore disbarred from seeking a mandate from your fellow citizens. I think that is a discrimination, yes. Um, and, you know, you often see people being begrieved by, by that fact that, oh, you're only there because your dad worked there or your mom made you take that job. But... Um, meritocracy is still in place. I think no one's cancelled that. Um, the election process, the application process, interviewing, hopefully those individuals still undergo that long route. But even if they manage to somehow surpass it, I think life is the best recruitment and sifting through process you can ever imagine. The talent always comes to, to the top and whoever fails, fails. It doesn't depend on who your mom and dad are. But is there, I mean, with all due respect, and just finally on this, Mark, with all due respect to the fact that, yes, ideally, if you live in a country where the voters get to decide things, the voters will decide whether or not your family heritage renders you suitable or unsuitable. But nevertheless, can the family name carry 
an ill-deserved gravitas? Is it almost an unfair advantage? I'm thinking that just last night on the programme, um, we discussed the peculiar case of President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Uh, of the Philippines. And frankly, it's incredible. I mean, you've kind of got to give him some credit. It's more or less incredible that anybody with that name could get elected to anything in the Philippines, um, given the record of his father. Um, but nevertheless, even if he has overcome that, is there still a kind of whether people acknowledge it or not it's almost subliminal there's a kind of there's a brand image that people buy into i think that is a bigger problem in the more fragile younger democracies than elsewhere actually i think the bigger thing is what aliona pointed to which is that if around the supper table as a two three four five eight ten year old you're learning all about it you're going to be good at it and it's the same in the private sector. I mean, um, Bernard Arnault today has just announced that two more of his sons will be joining the board of LVMH, the world's biggest luxury business, uh, luxury goods business. And of course, we all have seen exactly the same thing in, um, you know, through Succession and the great media shows. So (laughs) it's just a, a feature of the human condition, I think, to some degree. Well, it's nice to know we've all been here on the Daily on Merit. Uh, Sir Mark Lowcock and <laughs> Aliona Livko, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, the nominations for this year's Academy Awards are in, and I'm joined in the studio by somebody who is absolutely riveted by this, Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Um, Fernando, earlier today, you were hunched over your laptop screen with Steph Chungu, who's nearly as excited by this as you are, literally watching them as they came in. Was it worth the wait? Is this an exciting crop of nominations? I think it's a very exciting year. I mean, it's the year where cinemas are kind of back on track when it comes to the box office. Uh, I, I think even the schedule, because I think even in 2022, there haven't been that many releases. I mean, we're, the cinemas were still recovering mm-hmm. from COVID uh, as well. And I think it's a great list, Andrew, because it goes from auteur films, very kind of uh, the French film anatomy of a fall, but it goes to Barbie as well. Uh, so I think there's something for every taste, uh, if I may say here. Well, the headliner is Oppenheimer. 13 nominations, which is a lot. Um, it's a clear favourite, isn't it? It is a clear favourite and I think I can understand why. We even have a clip, actually, uh, of Oppenheimer, which we're going to listen to it now. Why? How about because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world? You're the great improviser, but this... You can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. So if Oppenheimer does leave the building with an absolute armful of Oscars, will you be booing or would you think it was fair enough? You know what? I'm very neutral on that one. I'm very glad that a film like Oppenheimer exists. It's not my favourite of the crop, but there's something to be said about Christopher Nolan. I mean, mm-hmm. here is a an over three hour film or, or, or three hours, I believe, that did so well at the box office, but he, you know, he takes cinema very seriously. The acting's perfection with Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt, Killian Murphy, of course, 
he 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 loves cinema. He loves the craft. So I think if you like cinema, you have to watch Oppenheimer. I mean, I, I do struggle with the three-hour film. We have mm-hmm. Killers of the Flower Moon, which is excellent. Uh, but I think you know, if they trimmed a few minutes more, it would be great. But I wouldn't mind actually if Oppenheimer win. I think it's well deserved. I think he will take Best Picture and Best Director. Uh, you mentioned Killers of the Flower Moon, which does have at least one person in it who has been right here at Midori House, uh, i.e. the American songwriter Jason Isbell, uh, who branches out into acting for this. He did not get nominated uh, for an Oscar, but still, he'll get another crack, I'm sure. But when we look at the people who did get nominated in the acting categories, any surprises? Well, you mentioned Killers of the Flower Moon. It's not necessarily a surprise, but she is the first Native American actor to be nominated mm-hmm. ever, uh, which is Lily Gladstone from Killers of the Flower Moon. The first and Native American ever to be nominated. Absolutely. That in the seems acting, overdue. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and she played, uh, it's a fantastic role. Uh, I think she's one of the favourites, but Emma Stone with Poor Things by the Greek director uh, Yorgos Lantinos, that can also, uh, she can also win. So uh, let's look at the, the actor one is very interesting because mm. I was looking uh, an interesting stat. Although in the actress uh, field, there are a lot of younger actresses, all of the 10 nominees, five for Best Actor and five for Best Supporting Actor, they're all over 40. Uh, so there's been a lot of articles how Hollywood is struggling to find a new male stars. Uh, and that's that's quite an interesting stat there. We have Bradley Cooper, Coleman Domingo, Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti is excellent in the holdovers. He, he is, in fairness, excellent in everything I've ever seen him in. Absolutely. And I think the holdovers is a fantastic film. I spoke to Alexander Payne uh, the other day. It's on mm-hmm. the Monaco Weekly, if you want to have a listen. Uh, and, and again, if I may say, it's a comedy, The Holdovers. Uh, if you look at the best picture, out of the 10 films, four are comedies. That's, uh, I think, the highest number in, in recent years as well. Uh, if you were on the judging panel, if it is indeed a judging panel, Fernando, and frankly, I think it's a travesty that you're not, um, who would you be voting for? Well, a personal favourite of mine is a French film. It's Anatomy of a Fall. It's a French courtroom drama. It won the Palme d'Or uh, last year as I, well. I do like a courtroom drama. Oh, God, you must watch this one, mm-hmm. uh, Andrew. And and they have uh, Sandra Huller as a German actress. I mean, the film, it's in French, in German, in English. You have to watch it and see. She's been nominated for Best Actress. It's superb. I mean, and and the director, Justine Triette, I was very happy to see that she was nominated for Best Director, the only uh, the only woman to be uh, nominated in, in um, among the top five. Uh, I think it's my favorite. We even have a clip of it, so you can have a feel for it. Tu m'as dit que t'avais entendu tes parents, maman, t'es sortie de la maison, c'est ça? En fait, j'entendais pas vraiment les mots, j'avais que des bouts de voix, mais ça ah, faisait... Ah oui, mais non, si t'avais pas les mots, du coup, tu peux pas savoir si c'était une dispute ou pas. Enfin, je sais, je sais ce que j'ai entendu. So, as you know, the autopsy report is uh, inconclusive about the cause of death. Stop. I did not kill him. That's not the point. Good to hear them resuscitating the tradition of the old lady down the front of the cinema playing (laughs) playing the piano there as well, Fernando. Um, Just finally, though, Fernando, I do want to attempt to puncture your irrepressible carapace of positivity and ask, is there one particular possible result which, if it does come up on the night, will have you sitting in your lounge room in the small hours of the morning, booing and throwing popcorn at the television? Well, that's a very difficult question. 
question, Andrew, because I am a fan of most of the films. I mean, there's been some of them that I didn't like it perhaps as much. In fact, there's been disagreement uh, here in the office hasn't. Uh, about the film Maestro, which is a Netflix biopic uh, of an incredible composer. But I was not the biggest fan of the film, but I, I don't think I would cry if he wins Best Picture, but it's not going to be. It will be the year of Oppenheimer. It's a clear favorite. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for joining us. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to our panellists today, Aliona Livko and Sir Mark Lowcock. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening.